we are so used to viewing things in such a narrow space of counting and counting people and counting widgets and counting shoes or counting whatever that we forget the love part of philanthropy that actually causes transformation. Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This. I'm your host, Ann Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Pathia Carter, the president of New England Blacks in Philanthropy. Pathia has a passion for philanthropy and fueling the 21st century mindset by shining a light on racial assets and how they can be leveraged to improve education, workforce, and economic resources in our communities. Her experience is rooted in both Wall Street finance and community nonprofit and foundation leadership. Before becoming president of New England Blacks and Philanthropy, Bathia served as executive director of Grand Circle Foundation, was senior director in the Community Impact Division of United Way, and program director at the Girls Coalition of Greater Boston. Bathia also worked for nearly 10 years in the financial services industry in New York City and Boston. In addition, she serves as a member of the board of directors of several local and national nonprofit organizations. Welcome, Vathaya. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. New England Blacks and Philanthropy's mission is to inform, reform, and transform philanthropy. Will you say more about what that means? What was philanthropy and what is it or can it be now? That's a very good question. When I think of philanthropy, or I would say modern philanthropy, people think of the robber barons, right? You think of Carnegie, you think of Rockefeller, you think of old white men. And that is not where philanthropy started. Philanthropy has been around as long as we've been around. But we've had this new notion that a philanthropist is primarily someone who gives large, large, large amounts of money, right, to, and he, he for the most part, bestows these gifts as charity <laughs> on some small organization that should be forever grateful. <laughs> and it's comical, right? It's, it's comical. It's comical for, for a number of reasons, um, particularly when I think about um, the, the traditional philanthropists, when it, when it comes to their gift, it's usually through the eyes of charity, not change. And in that traditional philanthropists, they're trying to solve some problem that they are not bringing the energy or the assets of the people who are experiencing that to the table, which is comical because you would never invest in that way, right? right? You would never say, I'm gonna go to a cook and then start telling them how to make their dish because I have money. Right. You just wouldn't do that. So why do we do that here? And and I think it's because it's wrapped up in power, class, race, especially the new philanthropy, race, and a number of things that 
um, that creates this very interesting mix that we call philanthropy. So when we thought about what it is that we wanted to do, uh, we wanted to change that mindset. And I was particularly struck by um, when I worked at United Way, we had donors or even the, the community foundations, you normally have donors who want to do something and they tend to want to be in this position, this exalted position of, I want to help those people, mm. but they're not my people. They were always distance at arm's length. And those people were seen as less than having no assets within their community, people that you can look at and say, there by the grace of God, go I. Right. Or people that we didn't believe had the ability to live a better life. And I found that fascinating, fascinating, because for the most part, every community I've ever seen has assets. And why are we not focusing on those assets? And to make that part, what really brought that to life for me was the fact that nine and almost nine and a half years ago, I had a baby. And, you know, when your child starts to walk and every parent knows this, you know, that child takes that first step or stands up. You're like, yes, God, oh my God, look at you. And then the child promptly falls on its butt. And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Let's, let's get back up. Come on, we could do this. And the child gets back up and you're like, yes. And you're cheering them on. And then that one step becomes 10 steps, become a hundred steps and thousands of steps. We never say to the child when it falls on its butt, mm, I knew you were going to fall down. Right. We never said, oh, you know, you just don't know how to put that one foot in front of the other, do you? Oh, okay. I know you're standing, but at what? I, I don't know if I should really buy you some shoes right. because <laughs> I'm sure this walking thing. I can't believe I'm laughing, but that is such a good right? analogy. You don't, or you or don't do what did you think was going to happen? Well, right. I, this is why <laughs> we're going to wait on those shoes. Yeah, that's what we say to communities, right? Oh, we're like, so oh, oh, you stood up. Oh, you felt that. Mm. Right. Well, I don't know if I'm going to give you any more money. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you didn't stay up the last time. So, you know what? Maybe I'll buy shoes next week. That's what we tell communities. And so we wanted to reform and really think through how we are evaluating change and, and the progress we're seeing in communities. How are we and inform the work and thinking about the assets of the community, reform the way that we talk about communities that hold thereby the grace of God go I, and then ultimately transform philanthropy that it works for everyone. And we think part of that transforming transformation is the democratizing of philanthropy. And philanthropy is about time, talent, treasure, ties, and testimony with actually treasure being the least of it, right? Because with the money, you're trying to buy influence, supplies, money is just a vehicle to do the real love or love for community. And I think too often we get it, so to speak, twisted because um, we are so used to viewing things in such a narrow space of counting 
and counting people and counting widgets and counting shoes or counting whatever, that we forget the love part of philanthropy that actually causes transformation. I know that was long. Love that. That is so good. The love part of philanthropy. Love rather than criticism or or um, judgment or even concern. Not that's not the right word. Um, But if you're concerned about someone, you tend to learn about them, right? Yeah, your child, when you're concerned about your child, you ask your child, what's the matter? How can I help you? Right? You don't say, "Mm, let me tell you what you need. (laughs) You need to think about this, like mommy. And you need to you, you don't do that. Yeah. I think that genuine concern is lacking because sometimes we take the humanity out. Like we, we, it's like in our work, we particularly on when we think about inform, reform, and transform. On the inform part, I, I I just get goosebumps thinking about it. Is particularly every city I've been in, we we have been taught to. As Isabel Wilkerson has illustrated really well in her book, Cast, to put people in a caste system, right? Some people are worth more and other people are worth less. So it's hard for me to be concerned about you if I don't value you, if I don't respect you. So I, if I, I don't understand you, I don't want to understand you, right? Because I don't value you, right? But I can judge you and I can tell you what you need to do, but I'm really not concerned about you. I'm concerned about me and my legacy. And then you become part of that legacy. Right. Oh, that's so good. I was talking to my friend Mandel Conway yesterday about his organization, Giving is Like. We talked about giving based on hearing the other person versus giving based on what I want to do based on the giver. Mm-hmm. And I, it's what I'm hearing you say. Is well, that, I really believe in that. I believe yeah. in the reciprocity of giving. And one of the things that um, we talk about in when, whenever we talk about the historical part of giving in Africa, when philanthropy, like in the 1600s, when philanthropy was practiced, the giver was the same as the receiver. So there was horizontal, right? And so horizontal philanthropy to me is philanthropy. It is important for us to understand that it's not what I want, but it's what our community need. What are the needs of our community? How are we moving that forward? How are we moving our community, our society forward? And I think the National Philanthropic Trust has this wonderful like historical um, timeline that they created uh, about philanthropy and how it was changing the world and you know as we were looking through it. And I love this historical thing because you can look at it by region. As we were looking through the history of philanthropy, uh, we happened upon particularly through the um, National Philanthropic Trust, who talk about the Zulu tribe promotes this concept of horizontal philanthropy, where the giver, the receiver are the same, 
it, it was important for them to promote this way of Harambe, that we're pulling it all together to encourage collaboration, mutual aid, mutual support. And one of the things that I think that is fascinating, like now we talk about this as is, this is a new concept. Yeah. This concept has been practiced <laughs> as long as we've been on earth. Yeah. I think what's new is when we try to, how, how would I say, quantify that? Like, how do we quantify the heart? You can't. And so in trying to quantify or when we create this caste system, you have to create a rationale for why you think you're at the top of that caste system. And I think philanthropy plays a role in helping th people think. Right. It's not the reality, but think that they're at the top of a caste system, a false caste system, because they think they can quantify the needs, the heart of a community. And I think that's why in a lot of spaces and places, philanthropy doesn't work because what are the real outcomes you're trying to achieve? Are you really trying to, it's similar to do diversity, equity, and inclusion. Are you just trying to create inclusion? Are you just trying to diversify this thing that you just have people sitting around a table looking a little bit different? Or are you really trying to create a society that's more equitable or increasing equity? So I, I do think this whole idea of it's more than it's hearing, but it's also moving beyond hearing that to your first word, to a space of concern, to a space of love, to a place of understanding, to a place of mutual support, collective support to move us forward. And that doesn't mean just I'm sitting at your table. And one of the things that I, you know, I think about a lot when people talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, maybe we create a new table. I think philanthropy sometimes can sit in that caste system, similar to those other guys, and think we have the answers, even though we don't have the answers. And so now philanthropy is very comfortable and say, we don't have the answers. So now we're going to listen to you. As long as you're saying something I want to hear. Right. But I'm, I'm curious to see how that's going to change. And I think as more people start to think about their own giving, um, as more people start to expand the definition of philanthropy beyond, beyond just money, um, I think there was a recent report that came out that says, philanthropy is shrinking. Why? What's behind the shrinkage or lack of donations? I, I kind of took that information with a grain of salt. Is it really shrinking or is it that people are doing it in a different way and, it, mm. and, it can't, and it's not being recorded by you? Right. Right. I love that. What, what is, what do you see or how, where do you see philanthropy being done differently? I, I think that's a funny question. When we say done differently, I think that's like, it's like a false truism, meaning mm. philanthropy has always been right. 
about givers and receivers, whether it's volunteerism, whether it's me giving you land, whether it, like we had just talked about in the Zulu tribe where, you know, there was a gift being made without an expectation of something in return. So that was in the 1600s. There, you know, people using their time to make their communities better. Uh, people using their talents to move issues forward. Um, I think what was different that we forgot that all of that stuff was part of philanthropy. And we started recording philanthropy as if it was one thing, money. Right. And I think that's a pretty modern sort of concept. Yeah. Oh, I love that you just pointed that out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. We talked about democratizing philanthropy. You mentioned democratizing philanthropy, and I, I was listening to an, or reading an interview you gave, and you said, we need to democratize philanthropy because philanthropy is about power. If we want equitable outcomes for all people, we must want equitable power. This way, everyone can lead from their seats. And then you went on to say democratizing philanthropy means that if everyone can become a philanthropist, we create countless leaders who can use their voices and philanthropic powers for the betterment of society and not just depend on the 1%. So I'm curious, when you when you talk about democratizing philanthropy and horizontal philanthropy, where, where do you see that happening? And where do you see that changing the modern culture around philanthropy? Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate this conversation from so many different places. When you democratize the system, right? Because people have agency. We just choose not to see it or we choose not to or we choose to control it, or we choose to exclude it. I really discovered that people were, people are afraid, weak people are afraid of equity and democracy because they feel like they're gonna lose control, right? Mm -hmm. So when, you have the ability to live your life and live your life out loud for the people who are repressed, thinking they must follow a certain system, certain space, a certain way of etiquette, a certain way of living, I think become not only angry, they become deviant. They become, they, they want to hurt you because how dare you live your life free out loud, how dare you contribute and and be authentic? Mm -hmm. So that authenticity you wanna kill because you're killing it inside yourself. And I think about that a lot, particularly being a black woman. If you think of philanthropy as in my way of not only offering my time and, and building things and my talent and creativity and my ties as in giving something agency and then having the ability to testify about that out loud that's scary because i'm taking agency over my life my community 
my world that you can't take away from me. Yeah. And so I, I think for a lot of people, it becomes scary. And so therefore we focus on philanthropy being very narrow and only if you look like me and have had these opportunities, can you truly be a philanthropist? And it's a way of diminishing or trying to diminish the power of others mm -hmm. so that you can never lead from your seat. You can never become powerful unless I empower you, right. unless I allow you to. Right. And I think when you stop counting by money, right, or if you stop using money as a metric to count and you take that away and you're looking at talent, you're looking at voice, you're looking at mm. agency, you're looking at authenticity. Well, that just changed the whole table. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love that. And it's an invitation and in, in some ways, it's an invitation to show for for everybody who's afraid to show up as their fullest self because they may have gifts to offer in return. You mentioned love before, and I think that, that that current is such a beautiful position to to stand in because it does encourage people to show up as their fullest. I'm kind of going off track here. I did want to say that I love the, when you use the word empower, um, I loved what it sparked in my brain and I'm so grateful for this is I, I use that word a lot as a coach, you know, helping to to empower people to to own their own, you know, whatever it is. But I hadn't thought until I heard you say that, I hadn't thought of that as it's still being about me. If I'm empowering you, I'm still holding the power to unlock you. And you, but you don't have that power. I don't. No, you don't. I know. We always talk about empowering someone. You can't empower anyone. What you can do is share with them some of your thoughts. That only, the only person that can empower someone That's right. is themselves. You can walk with me. You can share your story. You can try to, you can inspire me, but you can't give me power. And the beauty is you can't take it away from me. You can ignore it. You can kill me. You can, um, you, you know, I think about, again, Hampton Roads, you know. What, you have, just just so for context, what is, you said that, Rose. yeah, I mean, I know what yeah, Hampton yeah, yeah. Roads, but tell me what that is. We created a report giving Black Hampton Roads. And within our reports, we take on, we want to understand the history of that place. Like, what happened? How did this place become this place? And even though we're all from the United States of America, our space, our place holds stories, right? That makes us a little bit different. Not a lot, but it's interesting how things grow up. So Hampton Roads is really important and became important in 2019 because of 1619, you know, 400 years, 20 odd people showed up enslaved and they didn't just show up, they were brought in chains, enslaved in the United States. And it's a horrible story, right? It's a horrible story. And I think we often talk about that story 
as in, oh my God, those people, those slaves, they had nothing. And you know, and you go from that to they must have been ignorant, dumb, they, you know, they, they were savages. They were, and some people use it as a way of saying, well, we, you know, slavery was bad, but look what we've done. We made them Christians. We've, we've really empowered them to be better people today. And it's such a, it's a lie, right? Yeah. People that were brought here were multilingual. They were, they were highly educated. Some of them were highly educated. You know, some were Muslim, some were Christians. Some, you know, some were practicing medicines. You know, they taught white people how to build different houses. They, they brought so many skills and, and, and like straight up talents to people that had very few talents. And, and this is not something that I'm making up to feel better about being black. It's historically there for anyone to read, even on the Park Service website. It's a beautiful thing, right? Because we can no longer deny this history. So when I think about how we view people, how we value people, and, and the role of philanthropy in that, you know, we do use these words like, I'm going to empower this community. I'm going to transform this community. Mm. Wow. Wow. You, you, you can't do that. You don't, you've not, you don't know what that community, you have refused to see for the most part, what that community is undoing mm. because it's like critical race theory, right? You don't want to see it. You don't want to believe it. So how can you undo something that you don't believe in from the mm. first place? I, 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 personally think white people haven't been equitable amongst white people. So, I'm, you know, so racial equity is a whole new thing. Like, what, what does that mean? And so I, I think that in order to empower someone, that's why I believe you can only empower yourself because the only power you have over someone is yourself. Yeah. You only have power over yourself. That's all I can do. Even my child, I can't empower my child. I hopefully can inspire my child. I can hopefully help her see things, but she's got to pick that that spark up to create that fire in herself. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I really, I, I also love this conversation. I love every conversation I have with you, but I am, it's really helping me dig even deeper into the assumptions and translate the, the assumptions that I make without even realizing the unconscious assumptions I'm making. And even, even the language that I use in a way without really thinking about what that language means, where it came from, and the limits of it. So I, I that's just, that's awesome. Um, but we all have that, ahead. right? Yes. Because that's the air we breathe. That's what yeah. we're taught. That's what we were rewarded for. You know, she empowered millions of people. We all clap. We eat the rubber chicken. We, you know, this is, this is what's held up as, you yeah. know, oh my goodness. Did you see? Yeah. So how, how, why, how would you be, I don't know, 
vaccinated against that. I don't know. By having conversations like this and by having real open, non-judgmental conversations with each other and allowing allowing ourselves to to look at ourselves really honestly and without judgment. I think it's helpful to to take the judgment out of it and just say, oh yeah, that's there. I didn't I, I didn't realize that was there. And now I have a choice on yeah. how I want to move forward. Going back to philanthropy, will you share a moment of where you felt your work or saw your work making a difference? Yeah. I, I, I so love my work. I actually, I love my work a little too much because I'm not getting paid <laughs> enough. Um, so, and, and it's so hard to get our work funded. And I think it's hard because we're not putting out that gospel of philanthropy that people are used to hearing. We're, we're not, we're not here to tell people, um, or to advance the caste system or tell people you're so I you're so great. How can you help us? I I you know, I I I try to be honest about who I am and what I represent. And I think our work does that. I I, I am so proud to be I am so proud of my ancestry. Um, you know, my I am descendants of American blacks who were enslaved. I find that to be a strength um, because we're we're talking about people who were. I, I don't even know how to envision what slavery was about. Like it boggles my mind, and to think that this group of people not only lived through that, but also had a dream that, and I am that dream, that I would not only be educated, and they believed it, right? That I would have agency, I will have power, I will, I will, I will use my gifts to make this world better. And I don't know how you can do that in, in such an oppressive situation and, and people trying to kill your spirit, not just you physically, but your spirit daily. So I think, you know, I, I think the history of, of the United States is told from a very narrow, if you can imagine you have this huge bas basin of water that is holding a hundred gallons and you have a straw that you're sipping mm. out of it. I feel like that's our history that we're taught. And I, I knew, uh, you know, I'm, I, I know that my great grandmother was born into slavery. I know that my great, great grandmother was a slave. So it, it's not that long ago, I, I met my great grandmother, right? And that to me boggles my mind, right? Like, whoa, it's not like some, it's not like Egypt and the pyramids. Yeah. This is who we are. Yet, we try to erase my great grandmother and her mother at every turn. And I knew 
I just knew that we, we accomplished incredible things during that time. I knew that not every enslaved person was helped by a white person. I knew that schools were being built by black people. I knew that black people were fighting for the rights of black people. Yet we didn't have any of those stories. And whenever you saw anything, it's like this barefoot, barely, you know, we, you know, beaten person that we could pity. So we, the, I, I, the part we started creating this this work, giving black. And I have to, you know, combined Jewish philanthropies, bless their heart. I, I met with the leader of combined Jewish philanthropy one day and he said, so you're New England blacks and philanthropy. Tell me about black philanthropy. And I realized I did not have a historical context for that. You know, we can talk about black people giving to church and we could, you know, name maybe one or two people. But unlike Jewish people, we couldn't go into that historical part or or we because that information was missing. I think there is something very comforting, um, particularly amongst white people to really focus on the fact that we give to church because thank goodness they're giving to Jesus, they're giving to goodness. Mm -hmm. It's something very uncomfortable thinking that we are giving to the Black Panthers. Right. <laughs> We're giving to our freedom and our liberation. Right. It's like, oh, but what, what, what? <laughs> you doing what? <laughs> so, so I don't think many people were capturing right. how we were funding our own revolution, our own liberation. And going back to empowerment, they were very, I think for the most part, people, white people, were very comfortable in the notion of white people funding or empowering. Because right. I can take it back when I want to. Yeah. I can give it to you when I think you I deserve have it. Power over it, right? Right. There's an agency of power over right. that. So when we start started um, doing these reports, and we want to do a hundred of them, we're a long ways off. So we we are desperately seeking funding for this. But I have to give it to Kellogg, Kellogg W K Kellogg Foundation, Alondra Washington. They believed when we told them that we wanted to do this work, they actually believed mm -hmm. and no one else believed us. They were like, you're going to do what? And I am so thankful for Alondra and W.K. Kellogg, Alondra Washington and W.K. Kellogg taking a chance on us doing this sort of research to better understand black giving, not just as black gives a larger percentage of their income because and we tend to or black people we we are philanthropic yes we are but they took that chance on us really truly understanding what is underneath black giving where where do we give how do we give what motivates our giving and, and took a chance on us doing that research. And I think that we have had an amazing impact on how people, not just black people, how people um, view, look at, 
embrace Black philanthropy. You know, Alondra started this work, but Arillus Diaz um, and CC Moore, Cicely Moore, have been our partners in this work as well. And I think they will tell you what we have been able to do is really democratize philanthropy by helping people see the legacy of their philanthropy mm-hmm. from from a historical period in time, like the beginning or the making of the United States to today, and and hopefully where can that legacy go in the future? Um, our reports start with a historical perspective. Who were the first philanthropists in that community? Um, how did their philanthropic giving, time, talent, treasure, ties, and testimony change the tenor of that society? And what is the legacy of that today? And I think every city that we have ever done this report and we are looking to go to more cities, uh, what we have heard back from, what we have heard from the community at large, white people, black people, the community foundations, um, that it was transformational. It helped them see themselves in a different light. Mm. It helped to democratize the conversation of philanthropy. It arrested that notion that maybe these communities don't quite have assets. I think it helped people shift the paradigm of focusing on from deficits to truly focusing on the assets of that community. And I, I, I feel like we're just a vessel for that. Um, but I, I really think that um, it has helped to transform the conversation. You know, it's one thing to sit on high or I, I would say whether you are, you know, National Foundation, Community Foundation, whatever, to talk about what should be done in philanthropy, right? But you're still, you're still not just opening those floodgates and say, here are five questions and get your philanthropic gift. You're still going through a whole host of program directors and, you know, this bureaucrat and that bureaucrat and a board that votes in order to get like 10, 20, $30,000. Right. Um, I I think what is transformational is what happens when the work gets done outside of that system. And, you know, again, when it's money that is being measured, you can have control, but when it's the work that's being done or the conversation is changing or the tenor of the conversation is changing, that's a whole nother thing, right? And and I'm not sure, you know, I wonder in a few years, what will philanthropy look like when it's no longer controlled by this business of philanthropy? Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Where do you, what do you hope for the future? What do you see that? What do you see happening? You know, much like I think about nonprofits, I'm hoping that philanthropy in that, in that, you know, Robert Barron sort of sense of the word seeks to exist. Mm. That's what I hope. Uh, like nonprofits, you know, the goal is put, the goal of a nonprofit should be to work itself out of business. So how would I work myself out of business? (laughs) Um, That our work actually becomes part of every child's history book, that we truly talk about 
our history in the fullness of all of us, right? But maybe it's not even called his story anymore or her story. Maybe we have a new word for it, our story, or something that is really more inclusive of telling the story of all of us. I also think that hopefully when we create a more equitable society, philanthropy, again, isn't necessary. One of the things I think about and hopefully Bill Gates isn't listening to this, but I do think about Bill Gates, right? Or I, or I think about, and, or others, you know, who are trying to create equity. And, you know, now I have billions and I'm going to sit down and think about what I can do for society. Well, you could have done something a long time ago. And you know what you could have done? You could have put plants right here in the United States that would have put people to work at a living wage and allow people to keep jobs, right? And be able to take care of their own families mm. or be able to grow their own knowledge or create their own schools or be able to sustain and maintain, maintain and sustain and thrive. Instead, you chose to find the cheapest labor wherever you could in the world, build it there, create what you call shareholder value, become uber wealthy, and then say, oh, I'm going to create equity. How can you create equity in an from an inequitable space or system? The future of philanthropy, I think, is to be when we talk about equity, or diversity or inclusion, it can't be in particular, because the money is not coming from poor people. I, I should say financially deprived people. That's what I'll say, because poor is a state of mind. The money is coming from a lot of these mega wealthy people that we're paying attention to that made money through inequitable ways that, you know, maybe, Bill, you could have cut your earnings to maybe a 10th and you still would have been okay. But what if you had created, instead of creating this huge mega philanthropic business, what if you had just created more equity and wealth mm. by changing the way that you do business? And I'm, I'm hoping that in the future, that's the mindset. If you have the opportunity to find the cheapest labor, is that the equitable thing to do? And maybe you do the equitable thing so you don't have to follow it with the philanthropic thing afterward. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That goes back to the table. How about we don't have a table? How about we don't have this mindset of inviting people to a table that didn't work in the first place? It didn't work. But we just take that all down, blow down, blow down the walls and say, let's all be here. What do we need? What does everybody need? And but that's create that that requires me to see you when you see me. Yeah. That requires me to honor you as a full human being. Yeah. And you honor me as a full human being. 
that requires me to think beyond counting in dollars. Yeah. To start thinking about counting in ways that we are moving our society forward. And I think the 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 blowing up or blowing down the walls requires us to think about the the full humanity of all of us and being able to respect the full humanity of all of us instead of continuing this cycle of or this caste system that we have grown accustomed to yeah and your stories, your reports that include these stories, these historical stories, sounds like a, a great step to help other people see and, and understand. Who, well, that's the only thing before. we have our stories, right? If we are not willing to tell the truth about who we are, why we are, we can never get to a different place. Before we end, Fathai, is there anything, well, first of all, where can people find you? And um, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we hear? Yeah, I want you to join us, join our conversation, join our journey. Like I said, we our goal is to inform, reform, and transform philanthropy. Invite us to your space have a conversation with us join our couch conversations we love our couch conversations we've had, we've had crazy cool people on our couch conversation we've had um ibram kendi we've had um, susan taylor former editor of essence we've had isabel wilkerson we've had you know amazing doctors um, who were talking about COVID before anyone else was talking about mm. COVID. Um, so we invite people to join our couch conversations. We recently featured Matthew Cherry and y Yvette Moldestin and Carol Walker talking about the Crown Act, you know, the, which is a funny thing, the Crown Act. Here we are in the 21st century trying to pass legislation that says I can wear my hair any way I want to. We're, 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 the Crown Act is only passed in 13, maybe 14 states. It, it would seem that would be the simplest thing to pass in the free world, right? In wow. the free world, we're yeah. free, right? That I can wear my hair any way I want to. And instead, it is not. The majority of the states have not passed the Crown Act. And um, we use our conversations to help people, again, see that every action is an important action. We want people to use their time, talent, treasure, ties, and testimony to lead from their seat. And so we would invite people to join our couch conversation. And next we are, and I'm super excited about this, our transform work, we are going to start, we're going to create alliances um, called the Give Black Alliance, where people can really come together in small groups to really dig deep and to, think about what's necessary to transform their community. We want to take, we want to give that power of philanthropy to everyone. 
not just a few foundations or program officers, but really activate the community to share its philanthropic goods. So we would invite people to join us. Um, we are at nebip.org, nebip.org. And I, I think people will find not only our conversations interesting, I, our reports interesting, but I think getting on this collective journey to really focus on our assets rather than our deficits, I think is not only a refreshing journey, but it's the journey that we need. Love that. Thank you so, so much, Pathai. It is always a pleasure and an honor and a joy oh, to spend time with you. <laughs> I love this. I, I love I love this opportunity to converse because yeah. I think often we hear lectures, but we don't have the time to talk. Mm. Well, I think um Often we hear lectures, but we're afraid to talk. I think people are afraid to listen and afraid to talk, afraid of what they might hear when they listen and afraid. I, I just it's it's my favorite thing to do is to have these kinds of conversations and to hear things I didn't to hear things about myself that I didn't recognize or didn't see. I love to see clearly. So I welcome the clarity and also an opportunity to see you even more clearly. So you're beautiful and I love you and thank you for I your love time. You too. The word philanthropy is derived from the Greek word philos, which means loving, and anthropos, meaning human. So philanthropy is at its core, loving humans. Love is the common thread running through all of my interviews this season. Every one of my guests loved the community they stood in enough to want more for it. They took steps, small at first, grounded in love and belief in their community, which yielded unexpected and beautiful outcomes for themselves and others. When looking at philanthropy through the lens of love, every action is an important action and everyone can lead from where they stand. What community do you love? You may already be a philanthropist. Do you give your time or share your talents or make connections or give that extra money because you love and believe in your community? That's the definition of philanthropy. So where do you see the opportunity to be more intentional, go one step further than you already do? If you need some direction, here are two organizations featured in this season that touched my heart deeply please consider donating to help their important and love-filled work continue. Old School Cafe at oldschoolcafe.com. That's O-L-D-S-K-O-O-L-C-A-F-E.com. And New England Blacks and Philanthropy at nebip.org. That's nebip.org. Thanks so much.